Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Straight Talking English. I am your host, Catherine. We are looking at Eden Rock this week. It is another poem that is a little bit miserable with the dude's life, but at least I'm not going to go blaming on his dad like I did last week. I am STRA Talk English on Twitter. If you go Amazon, look up the full context. My fifth book is out. It is the AQA Poetry Power and Conflict one, which is very, very good. I've also written them about Christmas Carol, Jekyll and Hyde, Sign of Four, and of Mice and Men. When I finish this poetry one, I'm going to do a gothic one as well. Quite excited about that. If you go on YouTube, you can see my face. I'm talking about all kinds of cool context stuff. And when this lockdown is over, I will be out and about again i think that's everything i do to be honest aside from my patreon if you like what i'm doing patreon flash straight talking english little as quid a month you can support my show and if you're a top tier subscriber you can commission me to write a thing all right let's get cracking then charles Coulsley and eden rock so it starts off with this like still image of the dad and the mum having a picnic and 90 percent sure that's not a real photo he does talk about real pictures and i'm going to read you a poem about one of his family pictures in a sec but this isn't it so like most people he has a mum he has a dad his mum is laura his dad is charlie they get engaged in 1914 they get married in 1915 there is a wedding photo of them and it's included in the book i'm drawing on quite a lot this week it's called all cornwall thunders at my door and it's by lawrence green and from their picture they they look quite a nice couple really like a lot of people he decides to put his feelings into poetry and when charles calls i'm going to be calling him charles and his dad charlie when charles looks back at his life he looks back at his parents role this is what he sees based on the wedding picture he says young man young young woman gazing out straight back straight eyed from what would seem a cloud of sepia and cream in your twin pair of eyes i note a sense of the ridiculous innocent courage the strange hope things might get better in the lean year of the lusitania and um, the ship that got torpedoed by the germans and it was full of innocent people and it's like a great tragedy that's its whole series mate gas used at the front arras and ape more than place names 1915 my father driver Coulsley, stands speckless in second wessex kit a riding crop in aldered hands lanyard well slicked and buttons lit with brasso military cap on the fake pillar for an urn khaki roughens his neck all linked to bayonet charge I see, the pu I see the mouth half lifted by a scrap of smile. It's a shock to learn how much at last he looks like me. Serene, my mother wears a white and Sunday look, and at her throat the vague smudge of a brooch, a mute pale wound of coral. The smooth weight of hair curls, curves from her brow. Gold chain circles a wrist to mark the day, and on the other is the grey twist of a bandage for the flame that tongued her flesh as if to say, I am those days that are to come. As I walk by them on their stair, a small surprise of sun, a ruse of light gives each a speaking air, a sudden thrust, 
though both refuse, silent as fish or water plants, to break the narrow stream of glass dividing us. I was nowhere that wedding day, and the pure glance they shaft me with acknowledges nothing of me. I am not here. The unregarding look appears to say, somehow, man is a breath, and at the end hides in the fire in bolting water or the earth. I am a child again, and move somewards these images of clay listening for their first birth cry, and with the breath my parents gave I warmed the cold words with my day, will the dead wait to fly, to fly. That's his impressions looking back. Dad, as he mentioned, was a driver that literally he's driving people around initially with horses and he had a horrific war experience maybe maybe as bad as Wilfred Owens I don't know but definitely horrific I'm referring back to Lawrence Green here he says Charlie had a hard war he lost his right index finger in an accident with a horse during a bombardment on the Somme and contracted tuberculosis of the lungs in the trenches as the result of a phosphine gas attack. Now unable to fire a rifle or tie his own bootlaces, he was invalided out the army in 1919 after serving for four years and 228 days. He was discharged, being surplus to military requirements, having suffered impairment since entry into the service. When he returned home, his health was much diminished, and he could no longer do the demanding job for which he had been taken on at Brimley House in Tainmouth. He'd become bony and prematurely aged. Yet another victim of the war to end all wars. Causley is born to this couple, and as we just said, uh, sorry, it's my phone, as we just said, Dad has extreme disabilities. Dad does eventually die when Charles is seven. Lawrence Green again. It was a dark winter evening, December 31st, 1924, when the coughing finally stopped. Charles was playing a solitary game of snakes and ladders in front of the kitchen stove when his mother and his aunt kept death watch. When Charles heard his mother say that his father was now with the angels, Charles replied, Oh. The inevitable had happened and Charlie's long process of involuntary withdrawal from life was now complete. <gasps> I mean, poor, poor dude. I mean, losing your dad age seven is terrible enough, but having to deal growing up at a time when you need a parent and his dad is suffering from the effects of the war, it's terrible. I'm skipping a bit, bit forward in time here. Charles, he goes into the Navy. A little bit more of that later. He comes back and he's a teacher at the same school he went to as a child. He teaches pretty much his whole life. He is a practicing classroom teacher and he does so until his 50s. From all accounts, he was an absolutely tremendous teacher. He's like one of these ones that's taught like generations and generations of people. And like this whole village is like, oh, Mr. Causley, yes. And when Charles Causley died, they interviewed a bunch of these Cornish people in Launceston. I think that's how you say it. L-A-U-N-C-E-S-T-O-N. And they all knew him and they'd all been taught by him. And I'm like, blooming heck, I would love if that was my teaching legacy. I doubt it will be. By the way, I was voted second most annoying teacher at my last school um, after my department head. So I like to think that's my legacy. His second most annoying teacher. But since he had to stay at home, and this was the time when 
like you sort of would be expected to devote your life to looking after a parent and this is where the parallels with Charlotte Mew's life story come in because if you remember or you want to go back and listen to that one she devoted her whole life to caring for her elderly mum and that became Causley's life he never married he never had children he never had a romantic partner as far as we know and because he was quite a straight-laced dude he didn't really discuss like who he fancied but we are led to believe that he was heterosexual um breaking our theme of closeted gay guys who write poetry and that was his life until age 54 until 1967 he knew that if he abandoned his mum he could not live with himself and he felt he was repaying this debt to his mum who brought him up he devoted every day to his mum like he would walk 10 minutes down the road teach 10 minutes back up caring for his mum he said when he turned 70 the family roles were reversed my mother was now the child and i became her parents both parents my mother's only cure and it was painful to acknowledge it was death it was impossible sometimes to avoid the feeling that one was being tugged into the same grave it's not really a coincidence (laughs) um that he started to write lengthily once his mother passed away in 1971 she in her last years she had suffered from a stroke and had almost complete immobility and the time he is writing Eden Rock is when he is coming to terms with this. The mother he's had his whole life has gone from being quite like an active woman, she's a churchgoer, she's involved in the community, to being someone who is like 100% dependent on her son. And like coming to terms with that bad boy and dealing with it in his own way may well have informed the picture that we have of his parents the mum is beautiful with golden hair and the dad is young and vibrant with a little dog and neither parent would have experienced that there's no way that his dad would have lived a vibrant life considering as he had chronic illness and his mum was well past that time in her life the other thing is of course and this is our link our little companion boy to before you were mine so before you were mine duffy is older than the woman in the picture even though the woman in the picture is her mum she's older than the picture Causley is older than his dad was when his dad died and it's this vibe that he had of like i'm living the middle age he should have had it's it's this weird like kind of debt he has going on so that's where he was when he wrote it and he actually did like somewhat rediscover his life after his mother passed he quit teaching he became a full-time writer and he actually traveled for the first time so he lived in in launceston his whole life he went to australia for six months can recommend it he went all over actually went to italy was fab but he had traveled before smooth change because he was in the navy during the second world war he did join up but he kind of joined before he was pushed he knew conscription was coming he knew that living close to the coast he would end up in the navy anyway so he jumped in he did not 
Write an autobiography. The closest we've got is an autobiographical essay called Skylark, which is written um, as an afterword to his only collection of short stories, which I've had to get off Amazon, and it's from some collection called the Cornish Library from 1951. He says, as a Cornishman who up to that point had lived the whole of his life within 25 miles of the naval base at Devonport, it may seem almost inevitable I should have joined the Navy, or more precisely, the Navy should have joined me. There was nothing voluntary on my part about the process, except for the fact I had expressed a preference for the Navy when summoned to the local labour exchange to register for military service in the doom-ridden autumn of 1939. He'd already read a lot of war poetry before going into the Navy. He cites Sassoon, Graves, Blunden and Owen. And it's kind of like, if that's how awful war is, man, if that's how awful it is, I'm going to go for the Navy, I'm not going to be stuck in a trench. Yeah. It kind of messed with his identity. And he saw things that were not good. I mean, obviously, he's coming back from war. He's going to have seen a lot of stuff. And this is the age before people talk about PTSD. He saw a lot of things that, as a young man, he shouldn't have. And he says, what saved me were my companions. The ship's company was composed almost entirely of serving professional sailors and of reservists of various kinds called up at the outbreak of war. Most of them had seen a good deal of action in the very recent Norwegian campaign. The ship was still groggy from the effects of bombshell and near miss. The crew was under no illusions whatever about the realities of the war in the sea. Hoped for the best but quietly expected the worst and made the best of med medieval living conditions. Their cheerfulness, only partly concealed by a thin veneer of moan and complaint, was amazing and I grew ashamed at my own discontent. Many of them were old enough to have been my father and accepted separation from home and family with wonderful patience and fortitude. Their philosophic acceptance of the fortunes of war that threatened and split and broke up the personal relationships of men and women as much as it threatened, literally, to destroy their bodies punctured my self-pity. Impossible that this was the first time I encountered human fortitude. But when one of his friends would die, it became this process of experience and moving away from his like little bubble one of his more famous poems is called convoy and um, and it kind of expresses that it says draw the blanket of ocean over the frozen face he lies his eyes quarried by glittering fish staring through the green freezing sea glass at the northern lights he is now a child in the land of christmas watching amazed the white tumbling bears and the diving seal the iron wind clangs round the ice caps, the five-pointed dog star burns over the silent sea, and the three ships come sailing in. Innocence and experience, and he does like Blake, loves a little bit of Blake. He, like, he loves this contradiction between innocence and experience, and I think that's what the poem's about. The war for him was a watershed seeing what the real world was like and he had this survivor's guilt when he came back it took a long time to process all of what he'd seen similar to owen and that was the point at which everything changed so causley and i don't know if i was just a very very ignorant person till i started this project or maybe i am not and things are very very difficult causley is mostly known as children's poet and he a lot of his stuff, his plays and his poems, 
have this weird theme of innocence and experience going through them. Some of them are just like jolly rhymes, but some of them are like dark, dark business. I'm going to give you My Mother Saw a Dancing Bear by Charles Colesley, and you tell me this thread of innocence and experience comes through this as well. My mother saw a dancing bear by the schoolyard a day in June. The keeper stood with a chain and bar and whistle pipe and played a tune. And Bruin lifted up its head. Bruin's another word for bear, I'm going to come back to that. And lifted up its dusty feet. And all the children laughed to see it caper in the summer heat. They watched as for the queen it died. Like it, it lay on its back when they said die for the queen. They watched it march. They watched it halt. They heard the keeper as he cried, Now roly-poly, somersault! And then my mother said there came the keeper with a begging cup, the bear with burning coat of fur, shaming the laughter to a stop. They paid a penny for the dance, but what they saw was not the show, only in Bruin's aching eyes, far distant forests and the snow. So, innocence and experience mixed up with memories of family. That's what you want to remember. So, I said Bruin, he loves myths and legends, much like Hughes, but he's one of them Cornish people that's well obsessed with being Cornish. So I went to university with a girl who was like a Cornish nationalist and is the only person I know who speaks literal Cornish. It's an absolutely beautiful language when spoken. And Gosley was one of them types. So of course he's going to use the word Bruin instead of bear. But knowing he's a Cornish nationalist tells us a bit of that that three sons thing doesn't it as if by three sons so he's not a religious dude his mum is a churchgoer um it's probably not going to be a reference to the trinity he liked church in the sense in the way actually weirdly i've enjoyed catholic mass um, i used to teach at a faith school and i had to attend mass and uh, being somewhat of an atheist i'd never had to do this before but it's the element of like sitting there and someone in a nice voice tells you about something and you sit there quietly in a nice building and you think about it that's, that's quite a nice experience and he enjoyed the being quiet and he enjoyed the life lessons bit but he, he weren't that religious he wasn't religious the three sons thing is called a dog son i had to google this on wikipedia and it is actually a meteorological phenomenon where under certain weather conditions it looks like there's three suns but in cornish and wider gaelic mythology three suns is an omen of bad luck it's an omen something bad is coming oh wait happy family scene but something bad is coming it's the death of his parents Doo -doo -doo. The other myth that I think comes into it, though I haven't got much evidence for it, and I was telling my partner about this, sometimes you just sort of have to assume a level of cultural knowledge. So if it's something that like a pretty educated person will know, it's reasonable to assume that someone who is a primary teacher his whole life would know this. And I'm talking about the myth of the River Stick. S-T-Y-X, not the band. So, if you're an ancient Greek, you you die, like people do, and someone would leave coins in your coffin. You chill on down to the afterlife, 
and there is a river, the River Styx, and the ferryman Charon will take you to the other side. Where you are at the moment is kind of rubbish, you don't want to be there. The other side is like the waiting area of a train, except wait, what you're waiting for is a new chance, or rebirth like reincarnation, a new body, or something new is going to happen to you. There's going to be divine intervention. There's going to be, oh gosh knows, with the ancient Greeks, Zeus is going to turn up in a swarm or a shower of coins or something because Zeus. But that gives a whole different spin to the poem. They're waiting to be together with him to restart his life. They're waiting to reborn to be reborn again. It's a poem of rebirth and restarting. It's not necessarily a poem of stopping. They're waiting for their rebirth. And I like that. The idea that like through reincarnation that family will come back except they'll have like a whole life together. It's nice, isn't it? That last line, God, it gets me like a gut punch every time. And if you say it in the right tone of voice, oh my days, it hurts, man. It hurts. So what did he think it would be like if I never thought it would be like this? Well, you can never predict the mortality of your own family. Um, that's impossible. And I would like to think that my family be around forever. So is it like, I never thought it would be like this because I thought my parents would live full and active lives. Well, maybe, maybe, yeah. As I mentioned, he never had a girlfriend and he never had children. So. Did he think he would be the one seeing his children rather than still being the child? Did he think like, okay, when I go to the afterlife, I'll be there with the person I love, with my kids, with the next part of the family? And did he think, yeah, is that what he's surprised? Is that what he regrets? That's my interpretations anyway. He thought he'd be around with a lot of little Causleys. So, Bro didn't really get recognition until later in life. And he's kind of this, like, underground figure where he's won, like, a million, million medals for awesome poeming. But no one's really heard of him. He died aged 83, relatively recently. He always had control over his own life, especially in the later part. He moved himself into a home, same village. He had friends, he taught a course at a university. He was friends with the writer Susan Hill, who did Woman in Black. And he lived a very full life, but much like Charlotte Mew. And I keep coming back to this, because their lives seem to have been this weird parallel. And if Charlotte wasn't lesbian, then maybe they could have made this amazing couple if they'd been born at the same time of not getting what they deserved when they were alive. And considering that he spent his whole life as a teacher, primary teacher, and he spent his whole life like writing poems for children, being around children, when he himself did not have any, I think he would have blooming loved it having his poem in our anthology. I think he would have had an absolute blast, to be honest. 
I really like that. And you can hear interviews, you can hear his readings. He did quite a lot of stuff for the BBC as well. So you can hear his voice. And he sounds like a nice old soul. Well, all right, Charles. Thanks very much. I'm glad that I made an old man very happy. I like to think he might have enjoyed this podcast as well. If he was listening, maybe someone could have played it to him. Oh, I'm such a sucker for these type of stories. Alright guys, thank you ever, ever, ever so much for listening. Loving it. Lovely to see you guys. I'm going to go back to another war one this week. Uh, Remains is going to be harrowing and disgusting, to be honest. And I'm probably going to have to swear in it. War photographer's a pretty easy one. I haven't decided yet. But we're going to have a war poem next week. Thank you very, very, very much for listening. STR8 Talk English on Twitter. The full context on Amazon. YouTube me up. Straight Talking English. You can see my face. I made some little films. Patreon slash Straight Talking English. If you are enjoying what I do, pound a month, you can support it. Thank you so much in advance. Right, guys. Catch you next week bit of a war poetry. Have a good one.